ask people who Jesus is, and you will discover a wide variety of answers. Journey with us to the Gospel of Mark as we discover the authentic Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? Uh, we're in this series, The Authentic Jesus, and I'd like to begin today talking about uh, a study that was done by a distinguished Christian historian professor at Princeton University. His name is Andrew Walls, and uh, he did a study of migrations of world religions, where the religion started and then where it uh, ended up and it, the center of that religion. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of the religions that he had uh, investigated. So Islam starts in Mecca, and it spreads throughout the world, but Islam's center is still Mecca. Uh, Hinduism begins in India, and it spreads throughout the world, but the center of Hinduism is still uh, in India and the Far East. Christianity begins in Jerusalem, and it begins to migrate out, uh, of course, into Rome and southern Europe and northern Africa, and then begins to expand into northern Europe and around the globe. And its center is no longer in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the center of Christianity is hard to pick out any one spot. It migrates around. Fifty uh, percent of the Christians who are living today live in the southern hemisphere. Right? So Christianity is exploding in Iraq, Iran, China, Africa. It's exploding. South America. Churches are being planted on a weekly basis. Christianity is exploding around the world. In about probably, probably 60 to 70 years, those countries will be sending missionaries to the United States. Because we'll be in a great decline. It's just the way it works. History doesn't lie. And so why does, the Christ, why does Christianity constantly migrate? Well, here's one, of, here's, here's one of his conclusions. He says this, that Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. So uh, it's hard for the powerful and the wealthy to submit and surrender to a poor carpenter who died on a cross. Like, it just, that's not how the powerful and the wealthy think. So the center of Christianity migrates away from power, away from wealth. And we might say it this way, it's not so much that Christianity doesn't want to be in those circles, it's just those circles don't want Christianity. And so, so it was, it, we see the developing world embracing Christianity. Why? Because they know that Jesus has what they need and they can't supply it on their own. At the center of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about giving up power and wealth and following Jesus. We live in a culture that celebrates power and beauty, right? So uh, I, I'm a fan of the first few weeks of American Idol, and it's less in, entertaining now than it was years ago 
When they lost Simon, American Idol has never been the same, you know, because Simon always told it like it was, and, and if you're not a Simon fan, that's just too bad. But, but Simon and, 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 you know, the, the show, I should say, the show American Idol, it glorifies, right, beauty and, you know, talent, and we don't have shows that are, you know, American average person helping out the person across the street. You know, we don't have that. Why don't we have that? Our culture doesn't celebrate those types of things. Sometimes at the end of a news broadcast, they'll have this sort of puppy dog story to make you feel good about yourself, about somebody helping somebody. I watched one the other night about a group of teenagers that helped out a young uh, uh, boy who struggles with autism at a skate park. But there was 25 minutes of awfulness. And then you come to this like, Brief two-minute clip of, you know, something good. Our country doesn't celebrate that. And that's why there's so much push away from Christianity. We live in a culture that celebrates the things that Jesus doesn't celebrate. And power and beauty and money have an insidious power to blind us to the need of Jesus. And so, isn't one of the toughest decisions to follow Jesus is to walk away from our power and wealth, that which we leverage to get things done. And so uh, Jesus is going to uh, in, uh, in, intersect into a man's life, a rich young ruler, and we're going to read about that in the Gospel of Mark, beginning in chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, let me pause here just for a second. It says that Jesus started on his way. If you were here last week, we talked about Jesus at, on the Mount Transfiguration, where he was transfigured on Mount Hermon, and then he begins his descent from the most northern part of Palestine to nearly one of the lowest parts of Palestine, Jerusalem, uh, outside Jerusalem to the cross. So Jesus is on his way to die on a cross. And along that way, he meets, he meets this rich young ruler, this devout Jew that has this question that every good Jew would know how to answer in that day. How does one inherit eternal life? The answer of the rabbis would be this, obey the law and avoid sin. That's what they would say. This is what this guy is thinking. Obey the law and avoid sin. If you ask a Christian uh, today or someone who says they're a Christian, say, how do you go to heaven? That might be their answer. Uh, do everything Jesus says and avoid sin. Like, that might be the answer. Now, this young man, he knows the answer, but he knows something is missing. And Jesus knows what is missing in his life. And that's the purpose of the story is to reveal that. And so, so Jesus is going to help him discover what is missing in his life. And so as we continue to read... Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, they were amazed at these words. 
But Jesus again said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone to, who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible with God. Look, this is God's word, and it has a lot to say to the American church today. Now, many of us do not think we're rich, but all you have to do is go outside the bubble of the United States. You could go to the southern border, and you could see the way the rest of the world lives. If you own a car, and you live in a house, and food is not like a question that you're going to eat somewhere, somehow today, then you live in the top three percentile of the richest people in the world of all time. Now, many of you don't think that because you look at your check account and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to pay the bills this week. But if you have food and shelter and you drive an automobile or you ride in an automobile, you are part of the richest group of people who have ever lived in the world today. It's hard for us to get that because we've lived this way for so long, but it really is true. We're rich. Now, some might say, well, I don't know if this scripture applies to me. Well, for some of us, it's going to apply in that we need to look at the wealth that can blind us from our need from Jesus. But there's another group of people, there always is, in every message, that they understand that they desperately need Jesus right now. There's a situation in their life that they cannot manage, and everything that they have in their wheelhouse to leverage to solve the problem is not working. And so they're turning to Jesus. So right in this story, Jesus, he, he, he gets this universal question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus brings up the, the issue of money, like I mean, is that appropriate? I mean, well, it is a, when you're Jesus, right? He's going to bring up right in the middle of this guy's conversation that thing which is blinding him. And so here's the problem in the first point. Trusting in our own enough is the trap. That's the trap. I, it may not be money, but it might be beauty. It might be intelligence. It might be uh, your pedigree, your family uh, it comes from a long line of success. Like whatever it is, there's something that, uh, that all of us will lean into when, we, when we're facing difficulties in life or when we think about meeting God in heaven. It's like, well, I'll just, I'll just be good enough. So this rich young ruler is probably very good looking because it's hard to be rich, it's hard to be young and not be good looking, right? Because you can probably you know, get the hair gel or whatever you need to look good, right? So this guy, uh, he, he, he's, he's probably very brilliant. He's probably smart. And Jesus essentially asked this guy two questions. He says, why do you call me good? So the first thing Jesus challenges is his definition of good. And in the South, we have an expression where they're good people. But if we were saying that and Jesus was present, he would turn to us and most certainly say, define good. Right. And it would be, well, you know, those common don't smoke or chew, run with the girls that do that kind of thing. Right. We'd say something like that. Right. But Jesus is, Jesus definition would be this. You have to be perfect and never do anything wrong ever from the very beginning to the very end. That's good. And we go, oh, OK, well, I, I, I guess I'm not you're not good people. You know, I just saying that's what Jesus said. You know, that's what that's how he would be. Right. And so Jesus, he asked these two brilliant questions 
to, to get this man to evaluate his problem. The second question really doesn't pose itself as a question, but essentially is in that, have you obeyed the commandments? Because he says, what about the commandments? And, and, and the guy says, I, I've done all of them. Really? From your youth all the way up to now, you've not broken one commandment. Wow. You've really evaluated yourself very critically and accurately, right? I mean, you must be really good. So here's what I'm saying. This is obvious. This guy is trusting in his good works and his power base, which is wealth and riches. And he's a ruler, so he's got some influence. Obviously, he's got some intellect. And so these are the things that are blinding him to his need to follow Jesus fully. And so um, the young man has viewed himself as good and righteous, and he needs to see that God is his only hope, and total reliance upon God is the only way to move forward. Now, it's really hard for us to read this. Maybe you've heard this kind of statement many, many times before, and most of the time we hear it, and we accept it, and we know it's true because we've come to church, and we read our Bibles and that kind of thing, but you know when it really sinks home to have total reliance upon the Lord? It is when we face a problem that there is nothing that we have uh, at our fingertips. There's no, there's no resource that we have that can manage that problem. And then we finally get to the point where we're completely, completely exhausted of anything that we can put forth to solve the problem and we come before the Lord and say I have no hope but you O Lord save me and God goes I've been waiting for you to get to that point now we can do something whenever you're facing life with your own you know wealth resources whatever Whatever that is, and you're facing most of the problems because of how you thought, or this is what grandma did, or this is what my buddy told me to do, as long as you're there, you're really not following Jesus. Jesus wants us to surrender everything to him and be completely reliant upon him. And it doesn't mean we don't have responsibility in the situation, but it does mean that he wants us to rely completely on him. And so... He uses this to drive the, the, this point home. Jesus uses an, a hyperbole, this ridiculous statement, to try and show uh, this man's dilemma. And the man's dilemma, obviously, is he's trusting in his own wealth. And so Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And now, over the centuries, people have tried to water down Jesus' hyperbole. They say things like, well, the Aramaic word for twine sounds a, a, a lot like needle. And so what Jesus is really saying is that it's like take, trying to get a rope through a needle. And you go, oh, that would be really hard, but it might be possible, right? And then uh, there's another explanation for this hyperbole of Jesus, an eye to uh, a camel through the eye of a needle. And it's that he was referring to the, there's a gate uh, on the outside of Jerusalem to enter the city, you would have to take everything off your camel and then get behind the camel and push. The cam- I don't recommend pushing on the, on, on the, I almost said it, on the back of the camel uh, but because it could result in, in, in something terrible to happen. But, but the point is this, that, that uh, Jesus 
means exactly what he says. It's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. Impossible. But with God, all things are possible, right? Now, I have uh, examined how there's some more modern ways to address this issue of getting a camel through the eye of a needle. One guy has come up with this design. I'll show it to you, and some of you are going to really be upset. But you take a camel, and you enter him into a room of buzzsaws. And you grind the camel up, and then you create a, a certain amount of vacuum. It has to be a pretty good vacuum. You guys who are engineers will figure this out. And you'll suck the camel. <laughs> suck the camel. That's really gross. Yeah, my student minister, Larry, told me to put this slide up. Actually, he didn't. He didn't. They did. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. But, but he's going he's gonna to say, the best part of your sermon Sunday, Bob, was the camel grinding. That was awesome. So anyway, so, so, all right, we'll get it off the screen. Get it off the screen. All right, so here's the point. It's so, yeah, she's going to have nightmares tonight. Uh, how do we... How do, we, how do we get past this, this, this issue of money? Jesus is saying, here's what Tim Keller says in his book. Says, Jesus is saying that there is something radically wrong with all of us. But money has a particular power to blind us to it. In fact, it has so much power to deceive us our, of our true spiritual state that we need a gracious, miraculous intervention from God to see it. And so... There'll be, a, there'll be some crisis moment that you will face, I will face, that there is nothing that we can do to deal with it. And we have to lean in completely to God. Essentially what Jesus does when he asks this guy to leave all his wealth, Jesus is hurrying that moment along, right? Moving it forward. And, and, and so he's, he's like, your problem is wealth, your problem is your resources, and you need to leave all of that, every penny of that behind, and trust me completely and follow me. I mean, that would, if Jesus asked you that or me that right now, I mean, that's going to be hard to do, is it not? It's just as hard for him. And so, so uh, this guy's problem is with money. Now, how do we know money has blinded us or deceived us? So here's a few questions to evaluate. If money is a problem in your life, with you and your relationship with God. So, can you give away a large sum of money to, uh, to, to, to a needed, you know, uh, nonprofit or to somebody in need and have no problem with giving away a large sum of money? That's, that's one question. So, uh, several weeks ago, we ordained uh, Alex List to uh, go be missionary in uh, Australia, and he's raising funds. He still needs about... $10,000, I think, something like that. Maybe it's a little bit less than that. And so maybe, maybe you're willing to donate two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 to that. Co- I'm serious. You don't, I, I mean, if you really want to see that you have no problem with money, give a sum of money away to a much-needed cause and just be fine with that. And you go, look, money does not have a hold on. I'm not blinded by wealth. Um, can are, are are you are you nervous or anxious about one day living on less than you have now? I would I would say yes to that. If I was sitting where you were sitting, I would go, "Yeah, preacher, yes." That's why I'm saving for retirement, right? And you should save, right? So all of us should at least practice this: the ten ten eighty principle. Out of your paycheck, tie ten percent to the Lord. 
save 10% and live off 80. If you're not there, you need to get there because that is a good rule of financial. Teach that to your children, 10, 10, 80. But, but, but I'm just saying, like, we can save, right, for the future, save for retirement, be real good about those kinds of things, and then we could meet something in our later years, God forbid, that could vanquish all that wealth in a moment, in a phone call, in a doctor's report, right? I mean, it could totally be removed from us. I've heard uh, people tell me who are elderly, like, I never thought I would be in this financial state. And they're, they're, they're anxious, they're concerned, because they don't know how they're going to manage life without the funds that they normally have. And so I know there's teaching that about that, but look, if we've surrendered everything to Jesus, you'll have, I'll have all that we need until it's simply time to go home. That's simply, that's it. You want to live a life free from the anxiety of wealth? Follow Jesus completely in every aspect, and you'll live confidently that He is caring for you. Um, another question, does it get under your skin? When you see someone who is amassing wealth much faster than you, maybe you have the same kind of career path, or maybe it's somebody that you work with and they get a big advancement and a big pay and you're jealous about it. I'd say you probably are being blinded by, by wealth. I mean, why not celebrate when somebody else advances? I mean, I know, I, I get that. I remember the day that the guy I worked with got lead and he got a dollar more in the hour and da-da-da-da-da. And I remember those days. I know how that makes us feel. But what I'm saying is Jesus wants to challenge our view of wealth. Now, it's not just money that can blind us to our need for Jesus. It could be your beauty, you, uh, you get through life by a great smile and a great talk, right? And so you've leveraged that to deal with situations. It could be uh, popularity. It could be that you're able to, uh, you know, uh, manipulate the situation and, and get through that. It could, be, it could be your intelligence, like you're just that smart. And you've all, never had any problem with school and, and your brain has got you out of all kinds of trouble and like all your confidence is right there. The problem with any of these things is that they become the center of our identity. And if that is challenged or removed, we crumble. Take away my wealth. Take away my intelligence. Take away all the things that I have in my wheelhouse to deal with life's problems. Am I crushed or am I just completely in the hands of Jesus knowing that he can, he can get me out of any of this and lead me through whatever. And so here's, that's the thing. Like Jesus is wanting us, whatever it is, in our, whatever it is that we leverage in life, to get, he's wanting, can you walk away from that and completely follow me, right? So, so anyway, Jesus wants to be a savior, not just a mentor, right? He says to this young man, go and sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. It was just as hard for them as it would be for us. But this is what Jesus is asking him to do. And, and this young man started to grieve because Jesus called him to follow because money was for him what the Father was for Jesus. Jesus is like, I'm wholly surrendered to the Father's will. You need to be wholly surrendered to my will, for I follow the Father's will. This is what I'm asking you to do. So the rich young ruler viewed Jesus simply as a coach, a teacher, a mentor, not, not a savior. He says, hey, Jesus, I, I think something's missing. 
can you just give me a little coaching right here because I'm not quite settled on this eternal life. I, there's, I just, can I run by you what I'm doing in life? Can, can you just make an analysis? That's the question. Jesus never allows himself to be a coach or a mentor. He's either Lord and King of the universe or he's a liar. He's either, he's either going to be uh, our king or he's going to be nothing. There is no in between. He does not give us that option. And so it's one thing to have God as a mentor in your life, helping you see right from wrong. But if you want God to be your savior, you have to replace what you're already looking to as your savior. Right? He is my all in all. This rich young guy could not do it. He was rich, good-looking, and wealthy, and a good Jew. I mean, he was morally a good person. And at that moment in his life, he was not ready to meet God. Rich, good-looking, influential, morally good, and still lost like a dog in high weeds. And so, we have to look somewhere else. There's a modern-day example of somebody who surrendered everything to follow Jesus. Her name is Abby Johnson. She let go of everything to follow Jesus. Abby was always fiercely determined to help women, and so she got involved in Planned Parenthood, thinking that was the way that she could help women. So this desire led her to a career uh, where she moved very rapidly to, uh, uh, to manage the largest abortion clinic in the Northern Hemisphere located in Houston, Texas. Some of us got to hear her talk years ago when she was in Danville. It's just an amazing story. Now it's been turned into this movie called Unplanned. And so during her eight years with Planned Parenthood, she rose right to the top. She was right at one of the most powerful organizations in the world today. And, and so uh, when she, you know, it was all just kind of business until one day she was asked uh, to uh, help assist in an abortion. And so she stepped into the room where the work is actually done. And she saw that child through the sonogram uh, wrestling, fighting for his life. And then that life extinguished at the hands of the doctor, and she knew that she had just participated in a murder, and it changed her outlook on everything. And when she decided to walk away, she walked away from power. She walked away from money because it is a lucrative business. It's one of the most lucrative businesses in the United States today. They make a lot, a lot of money. And where there's a lot of money, there's a lot of power, and essentially there's a lot of darkness there as well. And so anyway, when she made a decision to walk away, she was threatened, she was challenged, but she had to rely completely on Jesus. People have done this. People have walked away from everything that they would base their life on and follow Jesus completely. And she did. And so we have examples of people doing that. We often stand on the shoulders of those faithful people who've gone before us, who've demonstrated what it means to follow Jesus and walk away from that which their identity was and find their identity completely in Jesus. Now, uh, focusing on Jesus' will will give us more than enough to follow him. Our, our final point here is that, that when we focus completely on Jesus, he is more than enough to follow him. Jesus says, he, he, what Mark says about Jesus says, he looks at the rich young ruler and loves him. Next slide, if you will. Uh, so, 
Why did Jesus love this young man? Jesus looks at a lot of people throughout his uh, journeys on earth, does he not? And we know there's interacting with all kinds of people, but this is the only place in the Gospels where I find uh, the Gospel writer make note that Jesus loved this man. And the reason I think it's that way is because Jesus finds his closest association with any human on earth in this guy. He's compassionate with him because Jesus absolutely knows the struggle this young man is facing. Uh, the best way to understand any story in the Bible is to look at, at, look at it at the big story in the Bible. So we have this little story that we're reading about, but how does it fit into the bigger story or the upper story? There's a story in your life, in my life. How does our lower story fit into God's upper story? What is God's upper story? The Bible is one continuous story that demonstrates God's plan of redemption for mankind. He brings Jesus and the plan to save the world and bring fellowship back to him. So there's the big story. And then there's these upper stories, our own lives, fitting into his big story. And this is one of these moments. Here's this rich young ruler, little story, lower story, fitting into God's big story. And so when we understand this story says something about Jesus, we, we, we come to these really cool conclusions. See, Jesus identifies with this rich young guy because Jesus too is rich or was rich, right? When you own the universe, I mean, you got a lot. And he says, I'm walking away from all of that completely. Uh, Jesus had a desire. He had a will. He had authority. But in the garden, just a few weeks after this moment, in the garden, Jesus says to the Father, not, your, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus knows what it's like to surrender authority and completely follow the Father's will. Uh, Jesus asked this young man to give everything away, essentially his life, and find life only in him. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He gives his life away and finds his life renewed only by and through the Father. And so Jesus is not asking this young man or us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. And that's the point. So Jesus, he's the ultimate rich young ruler. That's why I love him. He associates. He knows what this guy, he knows the challenges in this guy's heart because Jesus faced all those same challenges as a human. And so... <clears throat> Jesus let go of his power. When you look at the cross, when you examine the cross, you do not see a demonstration of human power except for the fact that Rome was in charge and they were able to crucify this man. That, I mean, so, so you kill a man. That's, that's not a big... I mean, that's not... In, in compared to God's power, that is, that's, that's just one thing. I mean, Jesus surrenders everything. We don't see a demonstration of God's power on the cross. We see a relinquishing... We see a separation from power. He could have called, right, the angels, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is that he might do the Father's will and, and receive what he could not receive before, and that is us. His death provides our way of uh, having fellowship with the Father. And so it's the hardest thing to think of, but Jesus really is enough. When you... For Jesus, it was the Father's will enough. But for us, it's Jesus' will is enough. I, I don't know how many times, I, well, I can probably count them on one hand, actually, where I have like butted my head 
up against my own ability to do something and finally stepped back and said, okay, I'm going to leave it completely up to you. Your plan to bring someone into my life that I could marry. Your plan to take care of my finances. Your plan to take care of my rebellious child. Your plan. Like, I finally understand I have to give all of that which I have at my power to you so that your will would be done and I would finally get it. That you're enough. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, did you get that, than we ask or imagine, according to his power, to work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. I mean, Paul says, God can do far more than us. But it only happens when we surrender that which we think we're in control of. And that is not easy. It is so hard. And so, our, our Jesus, only Jesus, is more than enough to meet our deepest need. Every one of us have come in here today with some type of need. It might be financial, it might be emotional, it might be relational. I, you know, we all come to Christ with certain needs. Or we're carrying someone else's burdens with us. And we're like, how is this going to get done? First step is to evaluate, have I surrendered all? Have I allowed Jesus to come into my life and, and be the guide that I need? And be the Savior that I, I desperately need? Is He in in control of my life. If he's not, then we're still trying to operate out of our own, out of our own abilities. Some sometimes people get stuck in various places. I know I know it's easy to get stuck into not being in fellowship with God's people. You know, like I come to church, that's enough for me. No, it's not. Jesus says, "Love me." Good. I'm glad you're loving me, but love one another. At some point in time in life, these chairs that arose have to be circles in your life. At some point in time, these rows have to become circles. At some point in time, you have to be transparent and honest with others around you so that you can be love and love. It's not enough to come to the show. You have to get in the game. And so, so, so maybe you're at that point. Maybe you're like, hey, you know, I really struggle with being transparent and honest and open. But that's a protection thing for me. I'm willing to, I'm willing to set that thing aside and be vulnerable and be open, and come into God's community, and find find what I find what I what I need. And and guess what? God will use you to help you meet someone else's needs. It's really not all about us, is it? So that might be an area in your life that you're like, I don't know if Jesus can can do that for me, but He certainly can. He absolutely can meet your deepest need. He is more than enough. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to just uh, walk through this uh, really riveting, um, soul-searching passage of Scripture. And uh, Father, um, I just pray that each one of us would think deeply about uh, making you more than enough in our lives, making your will our will, making your passions our passions, making your... Um, plan our plan 
And Father, uh, moving into a, a deep relationship with your community that we can understand that and actually implement that in our lives. So Father, would you just help us now to take the next right step, whatever it might be, into finding you as our enough. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.